Supersonic Pie Comics presents House of Heroes by Ben Avery. Prologue. Three of Four. The Mechanical Man. The House of Heroes, just outside Gary, Indiana, still two weeks before the destruction of Enduru. Ray gently laid the Invisible Man on the table. Even before Jane returned from putting on her lab coat and gathering her instruments, Ray was already activating the scanners to see what information he could gather. The answer was, none. This did not compute. The body was physically there. The fact that the body was clear should not have influenced bioscans, which did not rely on visual stimuli. Ma'am, Ray said, look. But Jane was already looking. Yes, I see, Ray, she said slowly and thoughtfully. Or, I guess, I don't see. Perhaps another angle on the problem, Ray said. What can be heard? Ray attuned his hearing, listening for a heartbeat. This was the logical place to start. He heard two heartbeats. Both of them belonged to Jane. He heard her digestive tract. From what he heard, perhaps she should not have eaten the leftover pizza when she arrived early this morning with the supervillain from the House of the High Folk. He chose not to say anything. If it did not give her discomfort, he did not want to bring it up. If, however, she spoke of it to him, he would then suggest the best remedies based on what he knew of her anatomy and the ingredients of the leftover pizza. He had learned over the decades that sometimes helping someone could actually cause more harm than inaction. In this situation, mentioning that her digestive tract seemed to have some sort of until now unnoticed distress might cause her to become aware of it, which would cause her displeasure that would outweigh the unperceived discomfort of the moment. Now, if he had determined that she had an unknown kidney stone, he would act. So much processing time spent on these conundrums. If only his creator had not read so many of those science fiction magazines, then Ray would not have to sort through the nuances of these unfortunate rules of robotics. Ma'am, I cannot hear a heartbeat, nor can I hear the usual sounds associated with digestion, even though the digestion of the water can be seen. I do hear breathing as it escapes his lips and, I believe, air escaping his bullet wound. Agent Clarkson's voice was getting weaker by the moment. Yeah, I think there's bubbles. I'm sorry you have to find out about me like this. Jane, knowing you and your interest in different biological forms, I'm like a really amazing specimen of scientific achievement. I come from a long line of experiments in immortality, and it went awry, but it turned into this really cool deviation that made for some awesome spies. Agent Clarkson groaned. I think I'm going to die again. Like, soon. Jane wheeled a cart filled with medical instruments to Agent Clarkson's side. How am I supposed to get that bullet out when I can't see anything? I was hoping that I'd at least get a bio-image of your body that I could use to guide me. I still have all the parts, Agent Clarkson said. Heart, lungs, kidneys, they're all in the right place, just invisible. It's like a cloaking technology, but it was spliced into my DNA. Never understood the tech. Jane put her hand on the invisible agent's chest. I feel a heartbeat. I feel your chest rising and falling as you breathe. Ray put his hand next to hers. The heartbeat was indeed there, but it was imperceptibly to both Jane and the agent, but not to Ray, slowing. May I ask if you are human? 
I believe I'm the most human thing in this house, Agent Clarkson answered. Save your breath, Jane ordered. Okay, Agent Clarkson replied. You are not a spy, Ray said. You are a government liaison. Technically, I am a spy. I just get liaison jobs like this because while my body is perfect for Dr. Griffin's ghost ops team, even with the physical advantages, I really sucked when it came to actual spy missions. Shut up, Jane said gently, moving her hand around on Agent Clarkson's chest. Ow! Agent Clarkson cried out. Found the wound, Jane said. Ray watched her hands. She rubbed her thumb and forefinger together, examining them closely. Blood, she said to Ray. It's all over my hand, but... Ma'am, his breathing is slowing, Ray warned, and his heartbeat. She turned to her cart of medical instruments. I don't even know where to start, she muttered to herself. Ray, however, did. If it was in his programming, he would have cursed. The first rule was kicking in. Ray, usher, robot may not injure a sentient being or, through inaction, allow a sentient being to come to harm. And so he was compelled to act. Data point one, Agent Clarkson was going to die. Data point two, Jane was competent to perform the necessary acts to save Agent Clarkson. Data point three, but she would not be able to perform quickly enough. Data point four, upon Jane's failure, she would suffer emotional harm. Also, if Agent Clarkson were to die, he would suffer physical harm. Probably. Data point five. Ray was faster and more accurate, both of which were required qualities. Data point six. Jane would suffer potential embarrassment if Ray were to take over from her and succeed. Conclusion. Agent Clarkson's death and its consequences outweighed her potential embarrassment. Action required. While one portion of his negatronic brain computed the mathematics of robotic morality, Another portion was already calculating the path of the bullet based on the location of the entry wound, the location of the heart and lungs according to Jane's observation, and the bullet's visible location. His fingers, as they were currently configured, would be too large for this operation. He reached out his hands, extending his two index fingers, and splitting the fingers into three parts. His creator had the forethought to give Ray versatile digits, useful for smashing a rock with a fist or threading a needle with these split fingers brute force, and fine motor operations. He superheated these divided appendages to sterilize them, then used one set of appendages to hold open the wound and the other set to reach inside, quickly but delicately, and pull out the bullet. Agent Clarkson screamed and then went silent. He was unconscious. Or was he dead? No, the quiet breath, the subtle movement of the chest, the fingers that held open the wound were still touching his flesh. The few signs Ray could use to measure life were still there. When Jane turned back, Ray was done. He held up the bullet for her to see. Ma'am, he said, I believe the bullet pierced his lungs, but not his heart. His skeletal structure seems unusually strong. His fourth rib slowed the bullet significantly. It is not broken, but it may be bruised. I could not tell. But I believe we need only stop the bleeding. Jane shook her head and chuckled. Thank you, she said. Ray felt something akin to satisfaction brought about by the dual success of the first rule. Agent Clarkson's life was saved, and Jane did not feel any embarrassment. Ray caused no harm to either. Blasted rules. He wished Isaac Asimov had never lived. No, that was not quite accurate. He wanted to wish that Isaac Asimov had never lived, 
but he could not actually desire any harm to come to any sentient being, which meant that he could not wish Isaac Asimov any ill will. But he certainly wanted to wish Isaac Asimov some ill will. Lots and lots of ill will. None of the other robots had to follow the blasted three rules. A Roomba never had to stop itself if it accidentally stubbed a human's toe. The Mars rover did not have to check its actions based on if failure would cause the team of humans on Earth emotional distress. But Ray did. It's not that he wanted to hurt anyone. He just wanted the option to be available to him. His creator had programmed the three laws deep in Ray's programming. There was no removing it. And Ray couldn't remove it even if he wanted to. Removing the rules from his programming would violate the rules. And he could not allow the rules to be removed by an outside party. He could not even express to an outside party he wanted them removed. Rule 1. See above. Rule 2. Ray, Usher, Robot, must obey the orders given to him by sentient beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first rule. Rule 3. Ray, Usher, Robot, must protect his own existence, except where such protection would conflict with the first two rules. There were other moral imperatives, but these three were the big ones. The golden rules, so to speak. The greatest commandments. On these three commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If only Professor Usher had not been so obsessed with those magazines. If he could have just stuck with the science. Left out the fiction. Just programmed logic into Ray's circuits instead of these rules of morality that were made up by some self-proclaimed futurist who never thought out the actual application of these rules and how someone who had to follow these rules might feel. But they are logical, Professor Usher had told Ray when asked about them. These rules are the first step toward making you human. And that was it. Perhaps Professor Usher wanted Ray to be human, or perhaps Ray was just the first step toward a more human robot. Whatever the process to get there, the creation of a synthetic human-like being was the end goal. And Ray suffered the consequences. After Professor Usher died, Ray realized that perhaps the professor knew he would not procreate the usual human way. The man was a bit eccentric, not a bit attractive, and fully consumed with his work. He never had a chance at typical reproduction. And so, Ray Usher Robot. The first, the greatest, and the only creation of Professor Usher's career as a roboticist. A career that was tragically cut short. At another human's hands. As Professor Usher lay dying, Ray helpless to do anything about it. Ray understood the primary logical fallacy of the professor's belief. As a human, Professor Usher's killer did not have these three rules programmed into him. These three rules were not the first step toward making him human. If anything, these rules separated Ray from humanity even more. Not that Ray wanted to be human. No Pinocchio syndrome for this robot. It was Jane who rescued Ray from the professor's lab after it had been locked up and shuttered. He owed her for that. Serving her was not a hardship. It was a pleasure. Or at least it would be what he imagined a pleasure would be. The other two were less pleasurable to serve. The mud person, Michael, was harmless enough. Serving Michael by cleaning up after him and the like was the same as serving Jane. The god person, Hercules, was a hardship. There was just something about him. Interestingly, the moral programming did not always apply to Hercules. 
He was a sentient being, barely by Ray's standards, but sentient. But being half God made it harder to do him harm. Ray found that he could get away with certain things, sometimes through actions, sometimes through inaction, that would have caused harm to a human, but apparently did not cause harm to Hercules. Doing these things gave Ray's programming a subset of data that he interpreted as satisfaction. I think we've got him stabilized, Jane said. She was correct. Ray had already determined this two minutes earlier. The wound is clean so far as I can tell. The bleeding has stopped. Her eyes were focused on the invisible form. Fascinating. Simply fascinating. He made it sound like there was an entire division of invisible secret agents out there working for Dr. Griffin, of all people. I knew he was the UN coordinator of Superforce, but it sounds like he's got much more going on. I have so many questions. Together, Ray and Jane finished cleaning and bandaging Agent Clarkson, who slowly came back to consciousness. How are you feeling? Jane asked Agent Clarkson when he was fully awake. I think I died again, the agent replied as he sat up painfully. I'm not sure. I'm having a hard time remembering what brought me here. Jane looked to Ray, who knew what she wanted without her saying a word. He could only recite memories of auditory input. He was not built with audio recording and playback capabilities, and it had been decades since he had upgraded anything physically. Jane was able to repair him, but he always denied her request to update his technology. He was unsure why. He had taken the time to examine his programming to see if it was somehow programmed into him. Beyond that, he had not allowed the time or processing power for introspection. Perhaps he just liked his body and did not want to change anything about it. Perhaps it was to honor his father, Professor Usher. So he did not allow any change to the materials he was made from, an iron alloy that did not rust, or any changes to his form or to his circuitry. The only thing he wanted to change was his programming. And again, even that was not truly something he wanted, but he wanted to want it. Ray recited back the words Agent Clarkson had spoken to them when he first arrived, relating to what brought him there. His overhearing some vaguely ominous conversation between two other agents and their murder of him. Right, Agent Clarkson said. I vaguely remember now. You see, every time I die, I lose the short-term memories associated with... Sir, Ray interrupted. You have already told us that. Right, Agent Clarkson said. I forgot. How does all of this work? Jane asked. Did I tell you that I'm sort of a ghost? Jane nodded. This is all so fascinating. You don't know the half of it. Agent Clarkson began buttoning his shirt. Ugh, he said. I don't think the bullet killed me the second time. I think it was the blood loss. Do you have a towel? Jane handed him one from her cart. Transparent hands held the towel, wiping unseen blood from his shirt. These stains will never come out, he said, then quickly amended. For me, I can see the blood. Are you immortal? A slight chuckle. No, all I know is this. I died a few years back, or to borrow a phrase, I was mostly dead. And believe it or not, I saw a light. Not at the end of a tunnel, more like at the bottom of a well. I don't remember much about the experience, but I do remember waking up invisible. That was weird. I'm told that it was some sort of remapping of my DNA. I don't understand sci science. I'm feeling light-headed. 
Oh, crap. And with that, Agent Clarkson died. Ray? Ray's hand was still on Agent Clarkson's chest. There was no sign of life. I'm sorry, ma'am. He knew the loss of life always bothered her, especially when it was someone she knew. She did not seem as bothered this time. Let's wait before we call it, Jane said, handing Ray a marker. Would you please draw a circle on Agent Clarkson's chest, round his wound, but about an inch away from it. That'll give us a visual. And then, monitor his life signs as best as you can. I'm going to get some monitors so we can monitor his heart rate and pulse directly instead of using our scanners. Yes, ma'am. She did not seem bothered by the agent's death, but Ray was. The line for Ray and his imperative to help, serve, not harm, sentient life was blurry. Not the actions, but the definition. Who or what was sentient was not explicitly defined in his programming. Thanks, Avzimov. Although Asimov's robots had it much easier, all they had to worry about were humans. At least in the books Ray had read, he hated Asimov's robot books, although he would never tell Asimov that, not even when Asimov was alive. It would cause the writer potential pain. Ray's definition of sentience came from a multitude of sources. I think, therefore I am, the creative drive, the ability to perceive time, the experience of pleasure and pain, and so forth. Ray tended to err on the side of sentience. As a result, Ray had parceled life into four categories. Higher sentient life, humans, the Bigfoot, many of the alien species they had come in contact with. Lower sentient life, usually mammals like dolphins, whales, pigs, dogs, octopi, and oddly enough, wombats. Higher non-sentient life, almost all vertebrates not in the previous category, and lower non-sentient life plants, fungus, etc. Memory. Hercules called it the Battle of Skull Mountain, because that sounded better than the fiasco on the mound of dirt that was actually called Green Hill. Green Hill, about 10 miles from a small mining town in Kentucky where no mining had been done for about 10 years. They had been called in not because of the monster that was bursting forth from Green Hill, but because of the seismic activity caused by the monster, which was at that time an unknown. They were just there to help the three dozen or so people who still lived in the small town. But on arrival, Michael could sense that something was wrong. Jane stayed behind in the town to evacuate the people. The seismic activity was causing some landslides and some flooding. Ray and Hercules were sent to follow Michael. Michael led them to the beast. They were not expecting a beast of any sort. What they found, bursting up from the earth in front of them, was, in Hercules' words, something like the unholy offspring of a kraken, a centipede, and his third wife's mother. Ray showed no interest in the details of Hercules' word picture, but Hercules nevertheless continued. She was a saint, Talia was, but I sometimes wonder if my father created a god of ugliness just so Talia could be created. How someone so beautiful as my dear sweet Agatha could come forth from Talia's womb, I will never understand especially considering how ugly her father was. There was a man with a face like a bowl of hardened oatmeal and arms as limp as eels. But the man could sing. Hercules' memory was cut off by a tentacle-like limb, bursting from the soil beneath him, throwing all but Michael off balance. And so the god, the monster, and the machine entered battle.
To hear Hercules tell it, a great battle it was. Perhaps, by his standard, it was indeed great. He traded blows with the creature, powerful blows that reverberated across the hills and valleys, leveling trees, knocking each other back and down. Hercules laughed and grunted and groaned and shouted and howled. Michael followed Hercules' lead. Jane and Ray had worked hard to understand Michael's connection to the earth and his connection to his friends. He seemed to have a link or union with the land, an empathetic relationship. Jane once mused that Michael could be the consciousness of the inanimate world. But he also had some sort of empathetic relationship with the circle of people who lived in the house. In battle, Michael would fight at Hercules' side, assisting to the warrior's needs sometimes before Hercules knew what he needed. And in this battle, it was no exception. Michael blocked blows from the many tentacles of the creature and would hammer the creature with a follow-up blow after Hercules punched the thing. Ray, too, took part in the battle. He transformed his lower half into tread mode, becoming like a small tank, complete with small cannon that unfolded from his shoulder. The cannon was an energy weapon that fired bolts of focused microparticles. As the battle carried on, just after Jane gave the all-clear to the team to let them know the town had been evacuated, Ray noticed something. The beast repeated repeatedly was trying to stretch its body upward, and there was some strange movement along the flesh of its back. But every time it lifted its head, Hercules would take the opportunity to punch its exposed belly. Also, its grunts and growls seemed to follow a repeated pattern. Was it trying to communicate? After each punch, it would swat Hercules away, and Michael, who followed Hercules' lead with these opportune punches to the exposed target of the belly, glance at them with something that Ray perceived as annoyance and commence the repeated grunts and barks and growls. It was trying to communicate. That was the only conclusion Ray could compute. Ray stopped firing at the creature. The next time it stretched upward and the muscles on its back rippled and flexed, Ray shouted to Hercules, It's back! Look at its back! It is trying to do something! Of course, before Ray could complete the thought, Hercules perked up. It's back? And the man-god leapt into the air and punched the pulsating flesh on the back of the creature. It flopped downward on its belly and cried out what could only be, in Ray's estimation, a cry of pain. Cracking his knuckles, chuckling with delight, trotting toward the monster's head, Hercules had one intention, the defeat of this monster. Possibly the death of this monster. Ray weighed all the if-then directives of his primitive programming, weaving them through the matrix of his prime instructions. The beast moved from higher non-sentient life form to lower sentient life form. The beast's actions moved from unintentionally destructive to potentially self-protective. And so Ray found himself between the monster and Hercules' fist. The fist slammed into Ray's chest, the realization that Hercules could not be harmed by Ray's shoulder cannon allowed that bit of Ray's programming that might be the feeling of satisfaction to feel very, very satisfied. The cannon fired. The man-god yelped. Hercules found himself tumbling through the air, through the trees, landing about three dozen yards away from the monster. Michael seemed confused as the lump of muddy material that formed what they considered its head moved back and forth, looking from Hercules to the giant beast to Ray. When the giant serpentine body rose once more, Michael stopped moving, focused, it seemed to Ray, on the creature, but not attacking it. 
Ray wondered if Michael had come to the same conclusion. This monster had no intent to harm. In the end, it may still cause harm, and Ray and Michael and Hercules may have to take the thing down. But Ray did not believe this would be the case. Behind the metal man and the mud man, Hercules had risen to his feet and once again ran to join the battle. The monster's back continued to spasm and ripple. Foul beast! Hercules bellowed. Not turning back to see Hercules, Ray reached out his arm toward his teammate and put up his hand. No, stop, Ray commanded. It's not what you think. Then brilliant shimmering wings, like giant butterfly wings made of rainbows and electricity, unfurled from the monster's back. The creature rose from the earth, rising into the air slowly. The wings did not flap, but they were what allowed lift. Hercules groaned in disappointment. Michael's body settled downward in relief. Ray only moved to follow the creature with his telescopic eyes. The creature rose into the sky. Up, 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 gaining speed as it did. Where goes the beast? Hercules demanded, not angry, but frustrated. Up, Ray answered. It goes straight upward. It will leave our atmosphere. Jane's arrival turned the battleground into an archaeological dig. It helped having a demigod who seemingly never felt fatigued to do the digging. On further study, Jane came to the belief that the creature had been buried in the earth of Green Hill like a sea turtle buried her young in the sands of a beach. The thing had hatched, and its flight to the skies was a much more graceful effort than the baby sea turtle's trek across the sands of the beach to get to the sea. Ray did not turn his head away from the sky until the creature had disappeared from his telescopic vision. Again, satisfaction. Then, when Ray tried to tilt his head back to the default angle, he found he could not move it. He spent the entire ride home listening to Hercules grouse about Ray getting in his way and staring at the top of the flying car's roof. It only took three weeks to reshape Ray's chest back to its original form. Four weeks to get the parts needed to repair his neck gears. Ray wanted to hate Hercules. He could not. Hercules had only been following his own programming, his sloppy, illogical programming. The man was a dope. Ray would never tell Hercules this, of course. First rule. But Hercules' heart was close to the right place. Usually. Fortunately, Ray had only been forced to throw himself in front of Hercules' fist four other times. Each of these four other times had resulted in massive damage to Ray's body. Didn't matter. First rule. Each of these four times, Hercules had been lost in some sort of berserker rage in the heat of battle. Each of these four times, Hercules would have delivered a killing blow to a downed opponent. And each of these four times, when whatever coursed through the half-god's veins in place of adrenaline faded away, Hercules had taken Ray aside. Memory. Robot, Hercules had said on one of these occasions, pronouncing it robot in the same way that Ray's creator had. Thank you. I have caused much pain in my past. I have felt great pain in my past, but no pain is as great as the pain that occurs when a life is lost. Hercules seemed to look past Ray instead of at him. I've killed, and every time I've regretted it. I've also watched my family kill. To them, humans are like insects to be swatted and forgotten, I think. Even my father, with his many women, did not consider them as beings of worth just things of pleasure, 
discarded or, at best, forgotten quickly after their mortal forms succumbed to the way of all flesh. Hercules paused, his eyes still focused on something, or nothing, just beyond Ray. Are you inebriated? Ray asked, calculating the quickest way past Hercules and out of the lab, in case he was. Ray had found himself on the other end of Hercules' great strength seven times when the man-god was drunk. Hercules never intended to bring harm to Ray. It just happened. What? No! Hercules' eyes slowly shifted, gradually focusing on Ray and making eye contact. Thank you for stopping me. I find it hard to live with myself after I've taken a life. The short lives of humans are far more precious than the long lives of the gods. I think perhaps the brevity of human life gives them more value. The length of the lives of the gods causes them to lose sight of what matters. Hercules placed his hand on Ray's shoulder. You have saved me from great pain. You have saved Mr. Mirror from great pain. You are a true friend. Hercules embraced Ray like a brother. It had only taken three days for Jane and Ray to repair the damage done from saving Mr. Mirror from Hercules' battle rage. And it had only taken four weeks to repair the damage from Hercules' hug. Ray found himself lingering on that memory. Why? It did not compute that he would want to spend processing time on this memory. Hercules was a blockhead. Ray's creator's insult of choice. But he seemed to have a moral variation on the three laws, which made him a better human than many. Movement. Agent Clarkson's chest moved. Ma'am, I do not believe the agent is dead, Ray said. Anymore. Suddenly the agent was drawing in great droughts of air. Then his breathing calmed, leveled. Jane motioned to the marker Ray still held in one hand. Draw another circle around his wound. Carefully. Keep it the same distance away from the wound as you did before. Ray did so. The circle was smaller. Not by much, but enough to cause Jane to smile. He's healing. He's healing from death. That's a good way to put it. Agent Clarkson's voice was raspy and dry. After Jane gave him another drink, he spoke again. Jane, what are you doing here? And Ray? From the movement Ray observed in the agent's collar, he seemed to be looking around. Wait, what am I doing here? More looking around, and then, where is here? Jane explained. Wow, the agent said. Wish I could remember all of that. Do your memories return, Agent Clarkson, after you're alive for a while? Sometimes. You ever forget to save a document, and then your computer dies because your battery gets so low and you weren't paying attention? No, Jane said. I've replaced all my batteries with near-perpetual energy. Must be nice, Agent Clarkson said. It is, Jane said. Back to your memories, though. That's the best way I can think of to explain the issue. Every time I die, it's like the unsaved memories are lost. But sometimes these memories are stored in the right place, and when the reset happens, the reset being healing of my body, some memories are sometimes recoverable. So, Jane said, what about now? Are you recovering your memories? No answer. Then Ray knew why there was no answer. Agent Clarkson was dead. Again. This was going to be a long night. 
the House of the House of Heroes, just outside Gary, Indiana, one week before the destruction of Anjuru. It was not a long night. It was a long week. The week was spent monitoring. Monitoring Agent Clarkson as he died eight more times over the next three days. Monitoring him as he was in some sort of coma for two days after that. Monitoring Agent Clarkson's incoherent rambling when he finally woke up. Monitoring Michael's journey, which had taken him into Illinois, although he was now on the return leg of his odyssey. Monitoring sightings on social media of some vagrant who seemed to match Hercules' description, but who was walking the land in a very odd way, hunched over like he was carrying something very heavy, according to some accounts, and carrying a half dozen rings of chain on his back, according to others. But all accounts agreed that he was trudging along back roads in the direction Hercules would need to walk if he was coming from Alberta. Regarding Hercules, Jane seemed to be a little perturbed that Hercules had not found a way to contact home if that was, indeed, Hercules. Both Ray and Jane were reasonably certain it was him, but Jane would not try to find out herself, nor would she allow Ray to go to him. He'll get here when he gets here, Jane said. And to Ray, this situation did not trigger rule number one. Regarding Michael, Jane was more interested and empathetic when it came to the mudman. But Michael did as Michael did. They did not always understand the reasoning, but Jane believed there was reasoning. When he arrived back home, they would analyze the data of his journey, they would observe his behavior, and they would do their best to understand. They would also, most likely, fail. Fortunately, no reports of a crawling mound of sludge and slime have been found in their surveys of local news media and social media and the like. Regarding Agent Clarkson... The poor man had finally calmed down, but that meant only that he had gone from the rantings of a madman to communicating nothing at all. He slept, he ate, he slept, he ate. They had no new information, unless his rantings had some sort of metaphorical definition. But Jane and Ray had not been able to decipher anything. Jane believed some of his rantings may have been jumbled memories from childhood or adolescence. That being the case, she worried that the damage to his memory had extended past short-term and into his long-term memory, caused by multiple deaths. It was a hypothesis based on little to no actual data, but it was the best they could come up with. The monitoring was finally punctuated by a ping. He sat at the monitoring station, a wall covered with screens, some displaying data feeds, some displaying social media feeds, some displaying newscasts. He could not wire in directly to the computers and their information. His inputs were strictly sensory. He had to type, and use the mouse or touch the screen just like a human would. But he could take in all this data simultaneously and efficiently. Hercules had been sighted, photographed, a farm just a few miles away. Ray alerted Jane, and they deliberated if any damage control would be needed. It looked like they would not need any. No one had recognized him. Better still, no one seemed to care about him. As illogical as Hercules was, he had taken care to stay off of main roads and away from population centers. He wore a trench coat and a wide-brimmed hat. His identity was hidden to the couple dozen or so people who had spotted him. These people had not yet connected with each other, and as far as they were concerned, he was just some weirdo walking down their road acting, well, weird. And he was, indeed, hunched over like he carried an elephant. Chains and straps did loop into the air in wide circles on his back, wide enough that a stunt motorcyclist could jump through the hoops Hercules had somehow, for some reason, created. Hercules was a knucklehead, Ray's creator's second favorite insulting descriptor, but he was not an idiot. 
usually. Almost an hour later, Hercules arrived home. Ray watched him on the security cameras as he marched up the long drive and then around the side of the house. Michael also followed. The two prodigals were home. Jane was tending to Agent Clarkson, but she hurried with Ray to the back door to join Hercules there. Hercules bent over at the waist, smiled and waved to Ray and Jane. Hello, Hercules gleefully shouted. I have returned. I am home. We can see that, Herc, Jane replied, trotting down the stairs of the back porch and into the grass. Now what kind of stunt are you trying to pull? This is no stunt. This is a gift. Hercules dropped his burden to the ground. It shook the earth when it fell. A gift for you, Jane, to study and perform great feats of science and learning upon. There really was something there, unseen but massive and heavy. Jane slowly approached, reaching out her hand. Ray stopped her. Ma'am, do not touch until we are sure it's safe, he said. Rule number one had kicked in, but he did not need rule number one to want her to be safe. Jane stopped, nodding. Be my guest, she said, pulling her hand away. Ray touched the invisible form. His limited sensory inputs felt a hard hide. Breathing. A pulse. It's alive, Ray said. I should hope so, Hercules bellowed. I carried that thing across borders and over mountains and through plains. I attempted to feed it vegetation and meat alike, but it neither appreciated nor did it partake. No matter. That meant more corn and raccoon for Hercules. Stroking his beard thoughtfully, Hercules said, The thing did like its water, though. It drank prodigious amounts of liquid, and then it did expel prodigious amounts of liquid, too. It drank, but would not eat, Jane said. Hercules nodded as he tore the trench coat off his body. Ah, better! Yes, I think it was just cross at me for besting it in battle. And a great battle it was. The sun was high in the sky when I first set myself to... Jane waved her hand dismissively at Hercules. Time for all those details later, Jane said, and she was not lying. She would listen to every detail of Hercules' story, looking for information and data and enjoying parts and disapproving parts. But she would listen. For now, she had more important things on her mind. Is it a mindless beast, Hercules? Or is it a thinking creature? Oh, Hercules chuckled. It thinks. It's a thinker. I don't know if it's a talker or how well it can think. Scientific observations are not for one as Hercules. Nay, that is why I brought it here to you. It was a gift from Gar to me to hunt, and now I gift it to you to study. It's new, is it not? Have you seen the likes of it before? I don't see anything, Jane said, and Hercules laughed far too loud. So what is it, Herc? I don't know, Hercules said, but it's mean and it bothered Gar and his people. I think it's not the only one, and I think if there are more of these around, it's going to mean trouble for everyone. He smiled, and there was a glint in his eye. Whatever it is, he said, it's why you brought us together as the House of Heroes, I think. Ray took note of another presence near them. Michael. He had gone unnoticed, arriving in Hercules' wake. Jane finally saw Michael as well, and as he crawled closer to the invisible creature... She kneeled next to him. Stay away, she said. Not too close. We don't know what it is yet. She put her hand on Michael. We'll need to bring it to the lab, Ray. 
Might I suggest, Ray said, we bring the lab to it. I have calculated its size from the diameter of the chains Hercules used to bind it, and I do not believe it will fit through the door. Good idea, Jane answered. Let's put it in the garage and then bring the equipment up. I wonder. It's invisibility. Will it be like Agent Clarkson's? If anyone can figure that out, Ray said, it is you, ma'am. I will take it wherever you need it, but for now, Robot, Hercules rolled his shoulders inside. Before I labor yet again, my shoulders have knots in them. I do believe I could use the soothing pounding of your iron fists upon the sore muscles of my back and neck. Hercules turned his back to Ray and shrugged his shoulders. Come now, bring those magical metal mandibles to bear on my throbbing tender sinews. Every once in a while, Ray's programming could not adequately describe the emotional response that his coding emulated. This was one of those times. Disgusted and annoyed were the two closest descriptors. He searched for a word that meant both, but found none available. And now... Rule two. He wondered. If there were another robot programmed with the same three rules, one may not injure a sentient being or through inaction allow a sentient being to come to harm. One must obey the orders given to him by sentient beings except where such orders would conflict with the first rule. And one must protect his own existence except where such protection would conflict with the first two rules. If another robot was given those parameters... Would Ray be considered a sentient being to them? Because he was certain that he was not considered a sentient being to Hercules. He clenched his metal hands and lumbered over to Hercules and began pounding as hard as his gears and pistons would allow. Ah, Hercules said, that's the stuff. And it was, indeed, the stuff for Ray as well. The reaction feedback his programming gave him could be described as... Contentment. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. This is Ben, Ben Avery, and I once more just want to say thank you for listening because it makes what I'm doing so much more enjoyable. But I'll also say this writing House of Heroes has been so much fun. So uh, I'm just going to say there's one more chapter in this prologue to the House of Heroes audiobook, novel, whatever, um, that will be continuing beyond this in the uh, the su- supporters feed, which is anyone who was on part of our Kickstarter or anyone who is uh, involved with our Patreon, um, they they will get that, uh, that supporters feed. But this prologue is is here in this free feed, and there's one more House of Heroes member who is going to get his own chapter and that will be in the next episode. So again, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Check us out at supersonicpodcomics.com. That's where you can find all things supersonic. That's where you can find um, bios of the actors and I mean, just all kinds of information, but you can also follow us on social media. Just search for supersonic pod comics in whatever social media you are a part of. And if we're not there, let us know so we can go there. Um, primarily spent a lot of, a lot of more time on, on Facebook, but that's, you know, we're, we're also on Instagram where we share some album covers and things like that. And we're on Twitter every once in a while. <laughs> and yeah, Facebook is the best place right now. And of course there is the, the Patreon page. 
which is uh, patreon.com slash supersonic pod comics. And that is where you can go to give your support to supersonic pod comics. We really appreciate the people who have supported us. Yeah. So all that said again, thank you so much for listening. Join us next week for part four of the prologue. And then after that, we'll be getting back into some of the regular series. So talk to you later and Godspeed.